0: People don't come to black women and talk about the economy and they don't talk about foreign policy. And we care about those things, too. And I think it's important that folks know that and that they not only know it, but then they make time to acknowledge it and that their campaigns make time to acknowledge it.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. In this episode, we hear from two guests, Erica Washington and Quentin Savoir from a civic engagement group in Nevada called Make It Work Nevada. In the interview, they discuss a recent survey they conducted of black women in their state to learn about the issues that are most pressing to them and how they feel about the candidates running in the 2020 presidential election. The interview is conducted by my colleague, Josh Clark, who is a researcher with the Institute's Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project. Their conversation follows.
2: We're joined today by Erica Washington and Quentin Savoie, who are visiting us from Las Vegas. Erica is the executive director and Quentin the political director of Make It Work Nevada, an organization doing year-round civic engagement and policy change work to build the power, health, and vitality of Black families and communities in Nevada. Welcome, Erica, welcome, Quentin, to Who Belongs. Thank Good morning. You.
0: I'm excited. <laughs>
2: We're excited to have you here. I thought maybe we could start with Erica saying a bit about the mission of Make It Work Nevada, uh, especially as it relates to civic engagement and power building with the communities with whom you work.
0: Sure, uh, I I think you, you gave the uh, the uh, technical definition of our, our mission statement. <laughs> Um, But more so doing this work day in and day out, I feel that our mission is to be a conduit in the community, that we are not the voice. I am certainly not the voice. I am a conduit um, with my um, proximity to power, um, being close enough to uh, government agencies and what have you, um, Mm -hmm. that we are able to give people the opportunity to voice their concerns, um, and choose how their narrative is, um, is spoken. Mm-hmm. So we are a organization that wants to empower folks with the power that they already have, because I right. do believe that they do have the power. A lot of times we forget that we have the power. A lot of times we're busy doing other things that we're not using all of our powers, um, As as strongly as we could. So I am hoping that make it work in the long run a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now that we will always be that conduit for whatever issues that are coming up.
2: Yeah, I like that word conduit. People talk a lot about infrastructure mm-hmm. and civic engagement work, and that's that's kind of what it is, being that kind of a conduit or kind of a vehicle for people's voice.
0: Yeah, because it's not, you know, for for the longest time I, I used to say a voice for the voiceless because it, there's a, a great quote around that. But sure. in the end, I'm like, no, people have a voice. Like, who am I to say <laughs> I am the voice for the voiceless? No, yeah. even the folks that we aren't hearing, they have a voice. It's we aren't listening. Well mm-hmm. enough, we aren't giving um enough space and opportunity for people right. to uh, explain themselves um, in the language that they use and that they're able to explain themselves uh from their experiences and understanding that that isn't always academic and it may not sound a certain sort of way, but right. you know their their voice is valid and it should be heard,
2: yeah. So, yeah, actually, people um, not listening is a a kind of a good segue to, um, you know, Nevada's an early primary state, right? Mm -hmm. So I imagine you have a lot of candidates that have been passing through and Talking at people, making as many stops as they can, shaking as many hands as they can. Kissing the uh, babies. Kissing babies, right? <laughs> making yeah. phone
3: calls. Anonymous phone calls. <laughs> it's exciting.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I I wonder I wonder what it has been like for you all doing the work that you do in uh, I guess Nevada's the third well, it's a caucus state, but the third of the states that'll be involved in um, you know, choosing a, a candidate um, for the for the Democratic Party for the next um presidential race so what has that been like like what's the overall experience you all have had
0: so i think um it gets overwhelming very early so it feels like this this particular um presidential race has been going on for more than a year now for us (laughs) if we i can't even remember the first i think uh i think julian castro was probably the first candidate uh, before he had even announced that was spending a lot of time in nevada and he spent a lot of time in nevada which was really cool actually because i think he understood where his his people are you know, mm-hmm. and that Iowa' is not where he needed to start like he right. understands and he has voiced many times and although he is no longer um, a candidate for president for 2020, he is still uh, visible in Nevada but uh, what I realize uh, for um, for him particularly and some of the the talking points that he's used is that you know Nevada looks like America mm-hmm. more so than some other places in like New Hampshire or uh, Iowa and mm-hmm. no shade against Iowa or New Hampshire they have their place but the the amount of folks with uh, uh, different backgrounds and because and, diversity means a lot of different things it's not just about race or um, even language but just lived experiences like I think yeah. he was able to come in and sort of see that and then voice that on the debate stage he spent time in the um, in the sewer system Underneath Las Vegas, which a lot of people don't know that the tunnels under Las Vegas, um, a lot of homeless folks make their home oh, wow. there. And it's certainly unsanitary and it's right. certainly um, a scary place in which to be. And he spent time just walking through them and, wow. and, talking, to and people, talking to people and talking to people again, you know, using his ears and and mm. listening to folks who are really are, you know, I don't even want to say that they're in the margins, you know. You are in the tunnels. Because, right. Yeah. You are in the tunnels of Las Vegas. And so and so that was months and months ago. So um, there have been other folks, uh, Cory Booker. All the really interesting people who uh, spend a lot of time in Nevada are, you know, not in the race anymore. But those folks actually, I think, hopefully— um, I feel like there's a blueprint for a different way in which a president can run, or a person can run for president. Looking back to, if they look at all of these different candidates, um, or former candidates, and some of the things that they did, Nevada is a really important state. Um, I think all states are important, um, but there's not enough focus on the people who live there. People think about Nevada, they think about Las Vegas. You think of Las Vegas, you think about the Strip you think about the strip and you're thinking about you know the funky good time you're going to have there <laughs> and you know all of the tomfoolery and shenanigans that you can come up with but there are folks who make that happen for you who keep uh, right. the city and the strip running um you know whether it's folks who drive the buses and the the hotel maids and the the valet and our Lyft and Uber drivers and all of that there are so many people and we're we are families. We're the fifth largest school district in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of dang kids. Yeah. So I think it's really important that um, Nevada is taken really seriously and that yeah. people spend time thinking about um, um, what that can look like and how you can take Nevada as a, a small segment um, as a of, of the population of the United States and, and see that there's just so much diversity there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, this is the first year that I can really remember when, and maybe it's the first year, when there are a lot of people talking about, you know, maybe we should reconsider this Iowa, New Hampshire thing as the beginning of this primary process. And, um, you know, you, you laid out the reasons and it sounds like, you know, Julian Castro and uh, and you mentioned Cory Booker, too, mm-hmm. being there um, probably share that cr- criticism. So we'll see. We'll see if anything comes of it. Um, because yeah, I mean you're right. It's nothing against Iowa or New Hampshire, but right. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it make it made sense maybe you know some years ago. Yeah. Um, and people are really tied to the Midwest hometown, um, you know, small town type of feel. I think right. is, is what they think of. But Las Vegas is a small town.
3: Las hmm. Vegas is a very small town.
2: <laughs> It's a really that's small so town. That's so interesting.
3: Yes, absolutely. It's got
0: a lot of glitter on it. That's yeah. All.
3: You think Las Vegas Strip, you think fabulous, you think world-class. And not that the city itself isn't fine. It is a world-class city, but it is also a small town. Right. Uh, I yeah. think the way a lot of these candidates came to town and really ingratiated themselves and in the things that were happening in the community. For example, the, the recent camping ban ordinance that the city of Las Vegas recently passed. Julian Castro showed up at City Hall to protest the passage of this ordinance and to say, hey, as a former housing secretary, we can do something better than this. Mm -hmm. We are, as people, better than this. So it was just really admirable to watch a handful of the candidates really stay in tune with what was happening in the community and really in tune with the lives of people that aren't tourists outside of the four-mile strip.
0: And I think nice. Elizabeth Warren's um, campaign—they also um, weighed in on mm-hmm. on that same ordinance with the with the city of Las Vegas. So um, I think that is also important. And I don't—I'm not following um, their campaigns in all of the different cities, but I'm hoping that they are ingratiating themselves within the local politics as yeah. well, so that people can feel um, empowered. Because the president is one thing, but we need. All of that influence, and this is actually something I said to Elizabeth Warren um, when she she came to visit our office, um, is that we talk about big structural change, and we talk about all of um, all of the things we need to do in order to truly be progressive um, at the presidential level. When it comes down to the state and the municipal level, though, it's always. We can't do that. You know, we can't take it that far. You know, we need to protect seats and we need to just, you know, get folks in the in the door or in the seats in the in these different elected offices. And, you know,
3: got to keep a friendly business environment.
0: So many different things. (laughs) And so and all of these things like there are there's some there's there's some weight to some of that. But in the end, it's like, when are we just going to say this is what we need to do? And this is how we need to get there and we're going to do it. And we're not going to just take so much small incremental change for so long mm-hmm. to try to get one thing done, like minimum wage, raising the minimum yeah. wage. It's like mm-hmm. take you ten years before you actually raise the wage and then you're gonna need to do it again. Like how do we right. how do we talk about the things that they talk about on the debate stage? At the municipal level and at the state level, because if we can do it there, then you're going to have more people motivated to one vote and right. stay involved um, as opposed to just talking about at the presidential um, and federal level, which feels really far, I think, for most people. Right. And it's really hard to yeah. look, really wrap your mind around federal policy, which already takes a long time, too. So yeah, right. we need to start to like work in concert a little bit together. Yeah. Or yeah. a lot.
2: I wanted to hear about this this really great project that you all um, carried out and and are still working on. I think um, it was uh, the Black Women's Agenda 2020 survey. So um, you recently undertook this survey project. You pulled around a thousand three hundred Black women on a on a wide range of issues to understand, um, you know, what what this demographic of voters um, what they're thinking about, what they think about electoral process. Um, issues that matter most to them, um, policies they'd like to see changed. Um, I guess maybe the, maybe the first thing I'll let myself ask out of curiosity <laughs> and for interest of listeners. Um, there was a question about um, who people favor in the 2020 presidential field. Um, any, anything you want to say about what, what that breakdown <laughs> looks like in the, in the survey of black women in Nevada?
3: You know, it was really interesting to ask that question and to see such overwhelming support for Vice President Biden, mm. there were six age groups. We broke it down. We cross-tabbed it and analyzed it with candidate preference by age. There were six different age groups for folks to choose from. Yeah. Vice President Biden had the most support of all the age groups except 18 to 24. Oh, okay. 18 to 24, that age group, the most support from that age group went to Senator Bernie Sanders. Okay. Not surprising entirely. Mm -hmm. But I think what is also really important to highlight is that across all the age brackets, there was an option for folks to say, I don't know any of these people. Oh, wow. Okay. And the folks who answered that, that was the top response across all age groups. Is that right? Which really speaks to what the candidates should be doing in terms of making themselves more accessible Mm-hmm. and making their policies a little bit more layman for folks to understand. I always say, how does your policy on environmental justice or equal pay or affordable childcare? How does that translate to the single mom that has 3 kids and two jobs and doesn't really have time to dig deep into the policy the way that I do or the way that America does or anyone that has the time to really ingratiate themselves in politics? Mm-hmm. You're worried about making sure your light bill is paid, making sure your kids are fed and that the homework is done and that no ruckus is being stirred up in your neighborhood or at your kid's school. Mm-hmm. So I just really feel like that response of I don't know anyone really speaks to a huge opportunity that not just the candidates have, but maybe even the Democratic Party has altogether.
0: So I think um, what also is interesting about that in, in, in both questions is when we ask the question, who influences your vote?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the reasons why I wanted that question in there is because so many surrogates come into town to, right. you know, um, stop for a particular candidate. I've seen, you know, stars from Grey's Anatomy come into town. They came in and uh, for Hillary, I think. And, Got some cute pictures with people with and what's his face from Scandal. I should remember his name. Tony. Tony. Tony Gold- Goldwyn. Yes. Yeah, Fitz. Fitz. Yes. <laughs> I got a picture with him, and he came to like this little black-owned uh, breakfast place uh, in Las Vegas um, on the old West Side, and you know people were really excited to yeah. to see him. But does that translate into a vote? Or am I just really excited to see fits because <laughs> I, you know, fancy myself as an Olivia Pope or something, you know, you know, what is, how is that actually helpful? And especially for people who don't necessarily watch debates or yeah. they aren't as engaged. And it's really hard um even for myself, because I'm in the bubble. So this is my life, like 24 7. I am watching television or I'm listening to podcasts or I am reading articles or, you know, going to meetings and I'm talking about politics in some way, shape, or form. And so I know who all of these candidates are. And I knew who a lot of these folks were before they ran for in there, you know, some people who had no idea who Julian Castro was or who Elizabeth Warren was or um, even. Um, uh, what, Bloomberg and things like that if right. they're if you're not from, you know, the East Coast of New York and things like that. And right. so, you know, how do folks get to know these people and know, like, historically where they've stood and then also where they right. say they stand now? Um, you know, they use these surrogates. But what I found from that question is that most people felt like there was not a... Um, that that was not a reason for them to vote for anybody, that none of those people were influential to them. I think Oprah came up a couple times. So,
2: yeah, yeah. that was was like a, you could fill in anyone. It asked, like, who who influenced your vote. Totally Mm open-ended. Most people didn't fill it out? Is that what happened? Most
0: people filled it out, but Uh a lot of, you had some folks who said, you know, it was more about, you know, God, or it was more mm. about they made their own decisions and, you know, no mm. one else could influence their decisions, and so I don't know that that's, that's necessarily true, but right. that is how they felt in that mm-hmm. moment is that, you know, now I just I'm making this decision myself mm-hmm. yeah. Um. but also in the same breath they didn't necessarily know who most of the candidates were yeah. and so we're still trying to, like, kind of decipher, like, what does that really mean, and mm-hmm. how does how do you really uh, what are folks really paying attention to? And a lot of times it's, it's um, name recognition, mm-hmm. which is a, I think the main reason, honestly, that Biden yeah. came in so high. Yeah. Not because because the other really fun part about our Black women's agenda um, is that we did most of these questionnaires face to face. This was oh, not yeah okay. this mm-hmm. was not you know a phone survey or an internet survey. This was. Um, our folks out there talking to people we wow. we um, have folks riding the bus and we'll just ride the bus for a couple hours and talk to people while they're oh, wow. on their commute we um we laundromat laundromat we spent time at elementary schools um because usually that's they're still getting picked up and dropped off by sure. their parents and so we did little pop-ups and made little snack bags for the kids and
3: kids are ferociously hungry after school yeah. <laughs> they have never eaten before ever in life they are starving <laughs> and so it worked <laughs> always
0: always yes I never understand why my children are always so hungry like did you eat it all this week and so you know we made little snack bags with fruit and fruit snacks and and, and juice boxes and all of that and, and then we have a, a little photo booth that we had put up so something for mm-hmm. children to do long enough for parents to take to said take survey. survey and yeah. so when we had that opportunity so um we were able to get a lot of other information out of them. They're taking the survey and then people have questions while they're taking the survey or they have comments and they're like, I have no idea who this is. Or, you know, they start talking about some of the candidates and they're like, I think I've heard of this person. That's the person who did X, Y, and Z. And they're like, no, that's not them. And I tried not to give too much information because I wanted to be the questions to be answered um, as thoroughly as possible through their lens. Um, But most folks were like, that's the only person I know on this whole list.
2: Wow. And I guess that's
0: who I'd vote for. Mm -hmm. That scares me a little bit because, you know, that's not a good enough reason to do it. But at the same time, we also are comfortable with who we know, whether they are the best candidate or not.
3: And I wonder, not wonder, because I can say to that same question of who influences your vote, I would say that there was some nostalgia for President Obama and Michelle Obama in that answer as well. So I think there's definitely a correlation between that nostalgia Mm-hmm. and the familiarity of supporting Vice President Biden, even right. if blindly. Yeah. I miss President Obama. Biden was Obama's homeboy. Okay, I'm going to vote for Biden. Yeah, And it really can't be as cut and dry as that. I don't have any anything against Vice President Biden, but what I will say is that we are at a time in this country where if we're not measurably improving the lives of people, I don't know how much country we're going to have left. We have had 50-plus years of policies that have not looked out for people that believe that if I go to work every day and take care of my kids and provide opportunities for them, then I can have something better. But that is increasingly become less becoming the case. I tell the story of a canvasser from 2018. They were knocking a door and the woman answered the door and, and go through the script and the spill and are you going to vote? She says, well, why am I voting? I've been voting for Democrats for 20 years. I'm still living in the same projects. Mm. I don't know what to say to that. That, that yeah. canvasser came back and told me that and went on, wanted feedback, wanted me to. Well, how would you answer that? Well, I don't know what to tell her. Cat has definitely got my tongue. So in this case, not to make any one political party the problem, we need to figure out how we are changing people's lives. We have the power to do that. It can't be because we have to keep the business community happy. Business and strong family policy, strong policy that makes people lives a little more livable, those are not conflicting interests. They can't be.
2: Through this process, this survey process, I mean, I'm glad that you told the story of how you went about conducting the survey because, you know, I I looked at these numbers that you spoke to, you interviewed almost 1,300 people, you know, for point of reference, for people who don't know, you know, when you read in the New York Times, like, about some battleground poll or something like that. And, you know, Nate Cohn is making a big deal out of the findings of their poll in Wisconsin or Arizona or whatever. Usually that's like two hundred fifty people or three hundred people. Mm-hmm. If you if you dig beneath the headlines and you mm-hmm. dig beneath the hot takes that you're gonna get um and and you all interviewed a thousand three hundred. So this is, you know, that it sounds like it was eye opening. Um were there were there things that surprised you or other things that you would you would share that you didn't expect I mean I know that this is the community that you're working in mm-hmm. so maybe not a lot surprised you but that stood out
0: I think um Uh, We went into this survey, um, and and to give a little bit of of context, we were involved with the Black Census uh, Mm. with uh, Black Futures Lab in 2018. We had an opportunity to be the only organization in the state of Nevada to work on the Black Census. And so doing that, we... um, this is why I love Quentin. So you, you get the number because I get the number wrong every single time we talk about the Black <laughs> Census. So he is writing it down. He's like, you know, eighteen hundred forty-one people that we that took the Black Census in Nevada through okay. our organization. Because yeah, every and, time and I say it wrong, he's like, that's not how that's many. Because right. I <laughs> okay. never say enough.
2: Eight, okay, eighteen hundred forty-one, and and that was okay. So that was two thousand eighteen. This is Alicia Garza, Black Futures Lab mm-hmm. worked with. Um, organizations across the country to do uh, what was the biggest kind of census of of African-American or black Americans. Mm-hmm. Since Reconstruction, I Since, believe. right?
3: Mm-hmm. Since Reconstruction. Yeah.
0: And so we were, and how that happens, I I called her up and I said, hey, mm-hmm. are you, um, just showing off here that I could call her up. And so, <laughs> but I, I did and I called and I said, are you thinking about uh, doing the census in Nevada? And she was like, no. And I said, why not? And she's like, oh, I don't know, because you know, people think about black folks and they think about the South. Or you think about Chicago or Detroit or Oakland or, you know because there are more there um sure. but i'm like i think we could do this here i I'd, I'd like to do this here if this is an if if there's an opportunity to do it and at the time it was real it was still brand new it was early early in the year and so they were still putting their um um their program together and so finally she's like okay sure and and we were able to do it um, I'm sure she thought about it a little bit more than just saying, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. But, um, I was really I excited. Her. Right. And so <laughs> she was like, stop calling me maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, I felt that it was really important for us to be involved in that. Like that was something that felt really really good for us and Mm -hmm. so and it was it was really hard too because Mm -hmm. that census that survey was about 25 minutes long to take it was really long and Mm -hmm. to get people to take the whole thing was a little bit cumbersome and so we had some lessons that we learned through it and but it gave us a chance to talk to a lot of different folks Um, and that was you know anybody who identified as being black or um, of Of African origin origin. Mm -hmm. and so and then we're not going to heman hall over like what that is Um, one of the things that i noticed when we were out having people take the survey were people who had trouble um reading Mm -hmm. Um, and so there were times when we were reading the entire survey to people or people took an hour or more to take the survey because um just of some um, deficits they may have had and after we did it like it really sat with me as to When was the last time people really asked these questions? A lot of the questions that were asked on there, people were like, no one's ever asked me this before. No one has ever asked me anything like this. And so Mm -hmm. as we're talking about... Upcoming elections and, you know, people spend a lot of time talking about how great black women are because we're so great. And I I do know that. But, (laughs) you know, it becomes like a hashtag and, you know, just almost like talking points of trust black women, black women lead. And, you know, thank black women for the work they did in Alabama. And we are the most um, consistent voting block in the Democratic Party. All of that. And all of it is true, but it just feels like talk. So what exactly are you doing with and for black women and more importantly what are you what is what is it that they want and no one ever asks us what we want Mm -hmm. I am 40 years old I have a 20 year old daughter so do the math I was very young when I had her and um, I was 19 and I had just as much mental capacity as I do now I know a lot more but Mm -hmm. no one ever asked me what I thought about anything People make assumptions of who you are when you are a teenage parent, when you are on WIC or food stamps or Medicaid and all of that. And I am one of those people who received public assistance from the state of Michigan for um, some years as I was able to get my my stuff together. Right. Mm -hmm. But and I voted. I knew that voting was important. Mm -hmm. I voted for the first time when I was 20 um, in a presidential election. And I didn't necessarily know all the ins and outs and I wasn't policy savvy at all, mm-hmm. but I voted. But I was also so close to the problems, like anything mm-hmm. that happens with, um, you know, federal funding for public assistance programs like WIC or Medicaid mm-hmm. or food stamps, I would have been directly affected, Mm -hmm. but no one came and talked to me about Mm -hmm. it. No one asked me how, Mm -hmm. you know, these Mm -hmm. services work for me or what struggles I might be having. And so for me now being this conduit, I have that opportunity to talk to young moms or just people who are closer to the problem. And yeah. so that's where the black women's agenda, kind of the idea sort of sprung from is that I want to talk to as many people face-to-face. I want to talk to as many people who are um, having all types of struggles. Everyone's yeah. not poor and, and, and impoverished that we talk to. We talk to people who make six figures, who have doctorate degrees and all of that as well. But
3: And they're feeling a squeeze just as much as folks who didn't finish high school. Yes. And it's really, really interesting to see that dichotomy, someone who says, I have a terminal degree, but I only feel like I'm surviving. And I think to get to the huh. point that Erica was making about people assume things about teenage parents, that's the, generally the problem with most politicians. They assume what you need. Erica's very good about, well, just ask people. Have conversations with folks. Right. So when we had our researchers and our, our staff out in the field, these are young black women talking to black women. And I think that's why we were able to have the success that we had in terms of surveying as many people as we did. We didn't send our friends from, for example, Planned Parenthood to knock on the door of 86-year-old Valerie Johnson because you're probably – Ms. Johnson's probably not going to talk to you. But if I send – Not in the same way. Not in the same way. way. That's fair. Not in the same way. But if I send Jasmine to talk to Ms. Johnson, different story. Yeah.
2: Different story altogether. That's good research. Yeah. Understanding that is – understanding how you're going to get candid – responses i mean that's that's good methodology yeah. you know um yeah
0: yeah and we yeah. spent a lot of time also going to some of the beauty shops and barbershops and places yeah. like that as well also where a lot of truth telling happens in a beauty <laughs> shop a lot of sure. truth telling happens in a, in a nail salon and yeah. people are um, more interested in having those conversations i think at that time too and they are a lot more candid about even some of their like internal prejudices that they have and struggles. And so all of that is not necessarily, um, will be in the data, but it certainly will be in the foundation of how we are going to speak to folks coming up in this year. And also how, we are going to um, craft the narrative of, of the women in Nevada. I think it's it's really important that people see us as not a monolith because we, yeah. we are very different um, and very unique. But at the same time, we have um, a lot of similar struggles that a lot of times people just don't want to talk about out loud In you know, what my grandma would call mixed company, you know, you <laughs> oh, keep yeah. that, you keep that mixed kind company, of stuff yeah. inside your household. So a lot of times folks having struggle struggles and they have a degree, they have a master's degree or what have you, and they're still having trouble making ends meet. They don't necessarily want to tell anybody that because mm-hmm. it's embarrassing or, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, strong feelings they have around it. But at the same time, it's still happening and mm-hmm. they want their voice heard, but, they're not necessarily going to, you know, they're not going to go to a a Biden town hall and and stand up and say that. And then, you know, it just doesn't work that way.
2: Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure that you have such a rich, you know, set of data. And also, like you said, things that aren't in the data conversations that you learned that as an organization, you've you've you're internalizing those lessons and you have those stored in your heads. And I hope, that all of that gets written down too, because that's going to be valuable not just for your own programs, but for sure, well beyond um, for sure. Like you're saying, um, there was another there was another question on the survey that I thought was was interesting and that I was really happy was on there that asked. Um, this kind of goes along with something you said about um, the person who said, "I've been voting for Democrats for 20 years and they don't change anything," um, and you know there are a lot of people who think that. Um, having, having different kinds of, of candidates, um, as well, not just thinking in terms of parties is, is extremely important. And you had a question on the survey about whether the person would consider running for office themselves, (laughs) which, you know, I I imagine you got a lot of no's, but I wonder, I wonder if you got, I I wonder how that went.
3: So of the, I will say this, I, I grew up with all women. Okay. I love my mom, and I love my sisters, and they have made me the man I am today. We have to stop expecting black women to save the world <laughs> when the world is going up in flames. We had 60 people report, yes, they weren't interested in running for office. And okay. nearly, out of nearly 1,300 responses. Right. Yeah. And that wasn't surprising to me. I, I, there was a, when President Obama was elected, there was the colloquialism of, oh, well, you elect the black man now because the economy's in the tank and i feel like that could be applied to this okay now we want all these black women to rise up and lead the country which isn't wouldn't be a bad thing but man you take the world to the brink of exist of of non-existence before you're like okay well let's give y'all a chance <laughs> we have to stop doing that uh i think the other thing is i would i would venture to say at least with the women in my family they understand that their power could be as elected leaders or their power could be as community leaders. Um, My youngest sister has epilepsy. My mother was incredibly active as, as, as the parent of a disabled child Mm. when they were trying to shut down the only disabled school that we had in my hometown. She was asked countless times, why don't you run for state assembly? Think about state Senate. Well, why don't you run for school board? No, I'm just trying to feed my kids and make sure my baby has somewhere to go. And I think That is really what we all want. We want our kids to be safe. We want our neighborhoods to be safe. And it shouldn't have to mean I have to run for office and change how you all are conducting government and running government in the interest of just having a full life and doing better. I mean, that is not a tall order. That is not a big ask. But it seems so in 2020, unfortunately
0: we have some folks within the make it work family our ambassadors who are interested in running for office and i'm really excited that they are interested in running for office but yeah i think like most folks including myself like don't want to run for office i just you know i just want the world to be better and i want to feel mm-hmm. safe and i want to feel um like i can raise my children um and in in an environment that is um not only safe, but also just, you know, the world that I want to live in. And I mm. think that, that that's my theme for 2020 and beyond is, you know, what is the world we want to live in, like truly want to live in, and what are the steps to get there? Yeah, And it doesn't require all of us to run for office, but it does require us to hold folks accountable. Mm. And I think that in some of the conversations that I have had with folks – with black women um they may vote but the idea of holding folks accountable i think it kind of goes back to being uh, a black mama and just like i've already told you what's what what's what i told what i wanted you to do if i have to keep repeating myself you need a whole time out or more and so i feel as though they they are you know in the broader sense like I don't want to have to keep saying it over and over again right. because I'm busy and I'm doing other things. And so – and it, and it's an odd thing to have to do if you really think about it. Um, if you think about anything else, I take – if I drop my stuff off at the cleaners, I don't even call every day. Did you get the shirt done? Is it done? Did you – what about <laughs> did the Did you pre-spot
3: the collar? I need right. the collar pre-spot. Remember pre-spout. we talked about the one thing.
0: Like, you, don't, you want to drop it off and then you right. tell me it's going to be ready on Friday. When I come on Friday, it should be that's done. Sure. I don't have to remind you five times of what you told me you were going to do, but that's what – That's what we have to do with politicians is remind them what they said over and over again. And as a mama, I don't want to keep having to remind you to clean your room or to clean up the environment, you know.
3: Or that we need affordable child care Mm -hmm. or that women, black women are paid what 51 cents to the dollar of their 61 cents. Sixty. Sixty one cents to the dollar of their white male counterparts, or that in this very Christian pro-family country we live in, it might be wise to have some affordable childcare that doesn't take up more than a third of most folks' income. Mm-hmm. Childcare in Nevada is more expensive than going to the public university. How do you make that make sense? As an elected official, how can you go to bed and know that that is actual factual and not feel a drive to do anything about it.
0: And then tell people to pull themselves up by their
3: bootstraps. Oh yeah, Uh there's that. (laughs) There's that. Or how can you pass a camping ban ordinance for folks that are unhoused when housing is going through the roof in Nevada? That was the top issue that was reported on the Black Women's Agenda Survey. Folks are worried about not being able to afford where they live. And this is across economic status. This is across employment status. This is across educational achievement. Folks are worried about I don't I don't know what my rent is going to be this time next year and I don't know that I can afford that. Wow. It's scary. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah.
0: And at the same time they're supposed to be calling their senators and congresspeople and state senators and and reminding them to do their jobs. Right. Right. That's a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. So then we need to also think about like what is that doing to us both emotionally and and, and mentally, I think. Because it makes people on high it keeps people on high alert and it, it just makes you scared. Mm-hmm. And so then are we going into this election year um, full of fear? Mm-hmm. And are we voting with fear or are we voting with power?
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So w- Make It Work has collected all of this great great data. Um, what, What is uh, you all's kind of strategy or how are you going to use it to in, in the coming years? You know, pushing particular policy agendas or um, pu- pushing candidates, uh, making candidates here. Um, these voices that you're, like, like you said before, you're a conduit. Can I start? Or... As the
3: as the political guy, as the political guy, I would say because Eric is not political. As the political guy, I would say. In 2021, or I will say this, I'll back up a little bit. Nevada is one of the, I think, are we the only state that has a biannual legislative session? No. No. Okay. Well, we are one of a couple states that have a biannual legislative session. So our our, our state leaders meet every odd number year. So 2019, we passed a paid sick days bill to ensure that folks don't have to make a decision between going to work and taking care of their child when their kid gets sick. Not the best bill. We're going to work on strengthening it. But what what we're also taking up is paid family leave. And with this data, we ask folks the question of do you support a paid family leave policy that would allow you to be paid a portion of your salary for an extended period of time to grow your family, mm. to combat illness, to take care of a loved one? Loved one as you define it, right? Because – I'm of the mindset that if you create an environment in your workplace where folks feel like they have the space to do what they need to do outside of the workplace, you've created a loyal employee. You've created someone that's going to come back and work just as hard because you've been gracious and kind to them to allow them the space to care for their loved one. Mm -hmm. There was overwhelming support for that policy across all party lines and i should say that we had about a fifth of our respondents who say hey you know i'm not necessarily a democrat i don't always vote for democrats but when we asked the question about paid family leave that had about 91% support hmm. across all party lines so that is definitely a data point that i intend to use to lift up our or to to lift up our effort in passing paid family leave policy in the state of nevada in 2021 that's for sure great
0: great i think um Past the politics and the policy, um, we are going to lift up paid family leave and affordable child care and affordable housing. Like all of those things are um, imperative, but I think more so, um, what I am feeling like deep inside myself is, how are we, how are we uplifting the narrative so that we can stop having these very Disturbing and strange stereotypes of like what a black woman is or what a black family is or or um, what it means to be um, no longer struggling. Mm. Um, We've had some conversations with women around reproductive justice. Um, A lot Mm. of folks don't realize that the maternal mortality rate in America for black women is Really high. Yeah. Um, Nevada is not the highest. I I, think, I want to say Georgia and Michigan um, outrank us with the number of, yeah. of of mortality of of women who have recently given birth. Um, but Black women overall are dying. They are dying giving life, and then the question is why. Um, and it comes down to a lot of different things: racial bias, but also the lack of, um, you know medical facilities if you live in a rural area or, um, you know, not having transportation. There's so many different components to it um, that for me, I feel as though my job is to listen and my job is to help structure some narratives so that we can make some strong changes around everything because there's no way that we can move into... 2020, 21, 24, because every election is the big election. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, we know who is president currently, but we got here. You know, yeah. how did we get here in the first place? It's because we are not creating a strong enough narrative and and keeping our voice heard. And so, I think for me, I am, I feel as though we are starting to lay the track for um, Black women to not just be a a talking point or a last minute afterthought that when October comes of an election year Mm -hmm. that they start paying attention to and listening to and I think they have to hear us now and they have to listen now and they can't make assumptions about what we want to talk about because criminal justice was at the top of the list as well Mm -hmm. and it's something that a lot of candidates will come in and want to talk about but it might be the only thing they want to talk about like everyone lives um, you know the life of like the movie boys in the hood or something, you know, that's sometimes that's how I feel. um, Candidates walk into a room that they walk into a room and just say, oh, well, let's talk about criminal justice. Okay, sure. Because that is really important. And it is extremely important. I don't want to take anything away from that. But there are so many other things that folks want to talk about and and stories that they want to share and struggles that they have. And they all need to be uplifted, and we need to have those strong voices in all aspects, economic justice. Um, people don't come to black women and talk about the economy, and they don't talk, but they don't talk about um, uh, foreign policy. We have a lot of black women who are interested in foreign policy. There are a lot of black women who uh, from the survey, one of their biggest fears is war us going into another war like what does that Mm -hmm. mean because then you think about how many black women have black babies that are in the armed forces because they may feel that that was the only way for them to get out of whatever situation they were in or um, that was their way to get a college education or what have you but then now they have to go off and fight their children have to go off and fight a war possibly so they're extremely um, concerned about that and I haven't heard one candidate you know uplift a, a black woman's story or come to an event that is uh, specifically for black women or black or brown women and want to talk about foreign policy right. and we care about those things too and i think it's important that folks know that um and that they not only know it but then they make time to acknowledge it and that their campaigns make time to acknowledge it because their campaigns um There are not enough campaigns with black women on them uh, in high enough uh, advisory positions to make sure that uh, those type of narratives stay in their ear, too.
1: And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guests, Erica Washington and Quentin Savoir from the Make It Work Nevada organization for coming on, as well as my colleague from the Institute's Civic Engagement and Narrative Change Project, Josh Clark, for conducting the interview